always make a commitment, I will never waste your time. All right, so uh, thank you for coming out tonight to our first session. And uh, uh, in case I get caught up in this and forget at the end, there is a, there is a meal for everybody up in the fellowship hall, a taco nacho bar. And uh, I was told to tell you, if you have elementary age kids, get your kids first before you go eat. Don't leave the kids down there and get all nacho barred up and forget about your kids because then the youth workers are coming to shoot me. So uh, I was supposed to tell you that. <clears throat> you're, for the, you're here for the first session that will be 11 teaching sessions in 12 weeks. You might say, why we have 11 teaching sessions? We made a decision, and I think it's a great decision, that we're going to have 11 teaching sessions. And in the middle of this 12-week semester is Easter. And the week of Easter, we're going to have a worship outdoor event on that Wednesday night. We're going to tell everybody to bring bag chairs. We're going to set up like we did one time this last year out in the parking lot area and have just a big night of worship right in the, the week that leads up to Easter week. So that'll be the 12th week. So we've got a big plan for this semester. Uh, I have something uh, that I want to do to open up tonight. Most of you are aware that our, so, uh, our discipleship minister, Brian Perry, is in the hospital. They put him in ICU uh, this afternoon. He's, he's struggling. It is serious. Uh, they put him on a respirator just about an hour or so ago, and uh, we need to pray. We need to pray. So, let's pray. Father, we believe you are who you say you are. You are the breath of life, the creator, the ancient of days, the one who was and is and is to come. There is nothing outside your power and your will. So Lord, tonight this body at Nineveh, your church, it's not our church, it's your church, your people, your children, cry out to you. For help. Um, our minister, our friend, our brother is uh, very ill, fighting cancer and the sickness that comes with it. And we ask for your healing that this time that he's on the respirator, Lord, you'd use that to remove this uh, strep infection and this sickness and you would restore him to health and heal him from this cancer. Lord, by faith, we pray this, believing that you will hear us right now that you do hear us and you will respond. You will not turn your back. You will not turn your back. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so we need to do something. We need to put some context. If you're going to understand the seven churches of Revelation, You've got to understand the context of the application of the, the message itself. So tonight, the first part of tonight will be to set up the context of the condition in which Jesus comes and says, here, I've got a, I've got a message for these seven churches. So that's what we'll do. Tonight we're going to be in, begin with context. The Apostle John, uh, this is the... Um, 
one of the inner circle of Jesus, the Apostle John, is on the island of Patmos. He is a prisoner for being a preacher. So you need to understand this. He's a prisoner because he's a preacher. The island is located just offshore of what we call modern-day Turkey. And onshore are these seven churches that we're going to deal with. So here's this island. It's an island prison. It's a prison island. They put them on there. There's no way to get off. He's in prison because he's a preacher. They don't like preachers. Not in that particular area at that particular time. The timing is about 65 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we estimate that John is about 95 years old. He's an old guy, and he's a prisoner on this island. John, here's what I find most remarkable. John is the last remaining apostle. All the other ones have been martyred. All the other ones have been put to death. Why? Because they're preachers. All the preachers are dead, except John. All the apostles are dead, except John. In light of the persecution and suffering of that time, you must wonder why any of them, including John, thought the, the church, will it survive? I mean, I want you to put in your mind John's thinking at this point. This church thing's not going to make it. They're all dead. They're all dead. Peter's dead. Andrew's dead. They're all dead. I'm the only one left. And it looks like, what does it look like? What do you think it looks like? And I'm in prison. It looks like all is lost. Jesus will be forgotten. The church is going to die. It is in this context of great suffering and death, and John is in prison, that Jesus, just in time, just at the right moment, just when you need him the most, he shows up. He comes. Here we go, Revelation 1.1. This is the revelation. This is John writing, okay? This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John's talking, this is my report. If you read Revelation, you're reading my report of my encounter with God himself and Jesus, the, the Father and the Son. I'm going to tell you what I received from the Father, God the Father and Christ the Son. Now, verse 3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Now, listen, I'm going to get a blessing. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. So I'm going in looking for a blessing. And he blesses all who listen to its message. That's you. And obey what it says, for the time is near. The word revelation, you ever wonder why that's the word that, that's used to describe this book? It is the translation of the Greek word apocalypsis or the word apocalypse. 
When we think of the word apocalypse, what do you think of? Ooh, right? Somebody comes in and says, let me tell you about the apocalypse. You're like, ooh. But that's really not, that's, that's, that's what we put on it. That's not what the word really means. It simply means the uncovering or the unveiling. Jesus is going to remove the veil that hides the future. He's going to draw back the curtain so you can see behind the curtain. And Jesus said, I'm going to show you what's going to happen at the end. It's important that you understand. That's what the revelation is. He's going to move the curtain so John can look through and see. What does the time is near mean? If you go back up and look at that last verse, verse 3. And he's going to bless all who listen to its message and obey the message, obeys what it says. Why? For the time is near. What does the time is near mean in verse 3? How can we today explain that 2,000 years after John's encounter, how can we say the time is near? In fact, here's what happens. People read Revelation and they look and say that's 2,000 years ago. It can't be true. It can't be true because Jesus told John, the time is near. So let's deal with that today. Let's deal with this this third verse. Can this be wrong because the time wasn't near? Well, whose time? Who's talking? Whose time are we talking about? We don't make your time, we don't make God's time. Who's, Who's carrying on the conversation? Because the time is near. God is outside of our time. In fact, let me just give you a brief uh, reason for that. What is time? What, what, to me and you, what is time? Uh, I got a watch and it's doing something and yours is too. What is time? There's 24 hours in this day. What makes 24 hours? Because that's how long it takes for the earth to do one of these circles. So we figured that out and we call that time. And there's 365 roughly days in a year. Where's that number come from? That's how long it takes for this ball that's spinning to go all the way around the sun, one rotation. Do y'all think that God lives inside this circle that we're measuring time with? Or is he outside? He's not inside our time, is he? Is he located inside? Is he living down here and he's got a watch like mine? No. He's outside of our time. So when he says the time is near, you got to understand that the Bible itself says a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. So if that's God's time clock, then how long has it been for you and I? Two days. It's just been a couple of days. Dr. Reagan, who I, who I used some of his study material to prepare this, these sessions, he uses the word over and over to describe the time is near as the word imminence. And there's a strong background, I don't have time to go into that, is why he uses the phrase imminence. The word imminence, imminence means at any moment. So when he says the time is near, what he's, try, what he's trying to communicate is that at any moment it could break through. So near means at any moment. Not measuring some distance, but at any moment, it's here. This is the only book, Revelation, of the 66 books in the Bible that specifically promises a blessing to anyone who will read, study, and obey its message. Do you know that? There is no other book of the 66 that specifically says, if you read this, you'll get a blessing. You read it to somebody else, you'll get a blessing. 
And if you obey it, you'll get a blessing. Blessing, blessing, blessing. By verse 4, by the time you get to verse 4, the attention immediately goes to the seven churches in Asia Minor. By the time you get to verse 4, he's already calling out churches. Now, here's what's interesting, and I can, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. We're going to deal with these seven churches, and then the word church and the churches are not going to be mentioned again until the end of the book of Revelation. They're gone. Now, if you want to know what that means, you'll have to come to session number six or seven. Okay, there's your teaser. But he's, he's talking about churches already. He's church, 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 church. And then we're going to finish those seven churches, and he's going to finish the letter to the seven churches. And there's not another mention of the church anywhere during this tribulation time on the earth until the very, 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 very end. Interesting, isn't it? I'll explain that when we go through this. But I want you to think about something. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are full of Jesus' words, right? If you've got one of those Bibles that uses his words in red letters, you know that Luke says, well, this is what Jesus says, and Matthew says, this is what Jesus says. But, you know, it's full of all of that, all the remarkable things he did. But the revelation letters of Jesus to the seven churches, listen, this is kind of like, wow. But the revelation letters of Jesus to the seven churches are the only parts of the scripture that are directly from him. In other words, he said personally, write that down. In other words, he dictated, Jesus dictated to John, write down these words. And John writes them down. It's, it's person to person dictation from Jesus. That's what Revelation holds. Now, I'm, I'm not making light of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the other texts. I'm just saying, look at the power of what we're about to read. And I'll show you in a minute when Jesus looks at John and says, Hey, John, write this down. He's not doing that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. He's doing that in Revelation. As you read verses 4 through 8, Think about how important this letter would be to the church that was struggling to survive in the midst of great opposition. Now, here's where I'm going. Everybody's dead. You're John, and here comes Jesus. Everybody's dead except you, and you're in prison. The church doesn't look like it's going to survive. And here comes Jesus. All right, now let's look. Okay, that's real nice information. It has the same effect in this room tonight. You know what it looks like to me in the world? The church is losing. And when everybody thinks the church is losing, you know what's going to happen? He's going to come. He's going to come. When it looks like everything is lost, he's going to come. That's what he did here. So let's go to verse 4 through 8, and I'll try not to get too excited. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you a hint as I go through here. Grace and peace to you, and he's first going to refer to God the Father. And then he's going to refer to the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace to you from God the Father. Grace and peace to you from the Holy Spirit. And grace and peace to you from Jesus the Son. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He's going to mention all three. Now, here we go. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who always was, and who is still to come. That's God the Father. And the sevenfold Spirit before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ. There's the Son. 
He, Jesus, is the faithful witness to these things. The first to rise from the dead. Now, now don't read over that. He's the faithful, faithful witness to what I'm about to write down. Because John has heard it from Jesus. And he is the first person to rise from the dead. And the ruler, so he's the first to come out of the grave, and he is the ruler of all the kings of the world. Now, has that happened yet? Not yet, but it's going to. The first to rise from the dead, and he is the ruler, the boss, the head of all the kings on the earth. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By shedding his blood on the cross. Verse 6. By, by what he did on the cross and by who he is, he has made us, and that's us in this room, he has made us a kingdom of priests for his father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, verse 7. He comes with the clouds of heaven. And I want you to memorize, with the clouds of heaven. You need to put that in your head. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven. And everyone will see him. And everyone means everyone will see him. Even those who pierced him. All the nations of the world, that, oh, they're all going to see him. They're all going to mourn for him when he comes. They're going to see him. They're going to mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the, and the end, said the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. So let's get into this. Jesus has not left his bride alone to suffer. Because I'm convinced that at that point, they're wondering, has he abandoned us? They're all dead. All the apostles are dead and I'm in jail. He has not left them alone to suffer. He's still here. Jesus' appearance to John in his island prison says, I'm still here. And he has all glory and all power over all things. John, you don't have to worry. I am still in charge of everything on earth. The sevenfold spirits before the throne. Let's kind of look through some of these announcements. The sevenfold spirit before the throne refers to the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. One of the places you can go and find that is in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. That the Holy Spirit has these seven features or abilities or purposes. Um, if, if our mind could even comprehend that. So when it says the sevenfold spirit before the throne... It's what we would call the Holy Spirit. Jesus refers to his physical bodily resurrection. I want to make a point of this. Which, which will give great comfort to those who have lost loved ones and are being threatened with death themselves. So he says, I'm the first to rise from the dead. Now, if you're John in prison and all the other apostles are buried in the ground, what's that going to mean to you? Jesus, you're not in the ground anymore, are you? You're standing in front of me, aren't you? And 
what does it tell you for your loved one that's just got buried and for your friends in the graveyard? There's a dead man that was buried who's standing in front of me and he's alive. What's it do? It, it does what it's supposed to do for us. It keeps us in the game because the resurrection cures death 100% of the time. It's not 99% effective. The resurrection cures death 100% of the time. We are, and then he says, because of what Jesus did, because of who Jesus is, we are a kingdom of priests. How? Now, I could go real deep in this, but I'm not going to. We're, we're a kingdom of priests. I want you to think of it from a simple perspective. What is a priest? A priest was someone who stood between man and God. Okay? God would talk to the priest. The priest would talk to man. Man would talk to the priest. The priest would talk to God. He stood in the middle. So how do we do that? What's that mean to us? When, you pray, when we prayed to start this session tonight, we stood between Brian Perry and God. Do you understand? We're priests. You don't need a fancy robe. We've been robed in the righteousness of the high priest. We took our position between man and God. What's, how's it go the other way? I have the Bible. I have the Word of God. I can tell. I can stand between God and man and deliver the message of God. We are a kingdom of priests. Did you know that? It's quite a promotion. We are a kingdom of priests. We have access to God directly through prayer. And God is revealing the gospel message through us to the world. Revelations. Now, this is important. If you were to take all of Revelation and melt it down, you know what the overriding theme is? Verse 7 will emphasize the return of Christ and the end of Revelation. I'm in chapter 1, verse 7. What's it focus on? He's coming in the clouds. If I go to the end of Revelation, what are they focusing on? He's coming in the clouds. Revelation has an overriding theme. He's coming. Okay? He's coming in the clouds of heaven. In the beginning in chapter 1 and in the end, in the last chapter, he's coming. So, um, let's, let's go on to verse 9. I, John, am your brother and your partner in what? Suffering. Church, listen carefully. The suffering is because the church never is walking in the same direction as the world. The world is going in the other direction. We are the opposition to them. That in itself will be the origin of suffering. So he says, I'm John, I'm your brother, and I'm your partner in suffering, number one. I'm also your partner in God's kingdom, number two. And, I'm, and, and in patient endurance, number three, in which God calls us. Why do I need patient endurance in this kingdom, and why is there suffering? Because we're totally going in a different direction than the world's traveling. We're never going to line up with the world. You're not going to make peace with the world. It's not going to happen. Never. And then he says, I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. I want you to notice two things. Why is he in jail? I'm in jail for two, there's two charges against me. Preaching the word of God and I, my testimony about Jesus. I'll touch on that more in a moment. 
Notice John brings up suffering again, followed by the call to patient endurance through suffering. Verse 9, John then announces the two governmental charges that have landed him in jail. And I'm going to ask everybody in the room today, if the government makes this illegal, preaching the, preaching the gospel of Christ and testimony of Jesus, in other words, you won't shut up about what Jesus has done in your life. If the government makes those two points illegal, will they have enough to convict you? Isn't that a good question? Because some government would come to a lot of churches and say, we don't have enough evidence against them for that one. Because they don't preach it and they don't talk about it. John wouldn't stop preaching it and he wouldn't shut up about what? What's a testimony? What? And let me tell you what God did in my life. Let me tell you what his, his, let me tell you what his faithfulness looks like. He got put in jail for that. And if that becomes illegal in Kentucky tomorrow, y'all going to jail? Will they charge you? Might ought to think about that. Verse 10. This is when it gets an interesting point. John says it was the Lord's day. Let's go back up and read that. Verse 10. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the Spirit. And suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It was the Lord's day. Does that mean it was Sunday? I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't Sunday, but I don't think that's his reference. I think his reference is he was worshiping in the spirit. I think John was taken to the end of time. So when he says it's the Lord's day, here's what I think it means. I think John was taken to the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, he saw the end when Jesus is going to come back. He was taken to see the future. So it's not about, uh, it was Sunday and Jesus came. No, that's not what's happening here. It's not about Sunday. What John is seeing is the future. He's seeing the end when Jesus comes in glory. And you're going to see that in a moment. So the Lord's day is the day of the Lord that we're waiting for, longing for. And he's, he, he's, what's revelation? The unveiling, the revealing. So the revealing of what? The Lord's day, the day of the Lord. And notice this, it says, and I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit. John hears a loud voice like the sound of a great trumpet and he's in the spirit. Now, now I need to, let, let's, let's draw a parallel. You remember um, when the apostle Paul writes and he says that, that he, he was lifted by God and he, and he went to the third heaven? And, and Paul says, I think he says it twice, maybe three times. He says, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. All I know is I was lifted into the third heaven and I saw things so, so amazing, some things I cannot even talk about. She says, I don't know if I was in my body or if I was out of my body. Was I having a dream? Was I really there physically? Was I really transported to the future? Or was my spirit transported to the future and I, my body's still here? He says, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. I can just tell you what's over there. 
I can just tell you what's over there. So here's John, and John says, it was the Lord's day. I'm in the spirit. I don't know whether I'm in my body or out of my body. I just know that things are starting to appear. And behind me, there's a shout of a loud voice, like mighty rushing ocean sound. Now, what I'm about to read to you is not an angel talking. What I'm about to read to you is what makes Revelation rather unique. Jesus is going to talk directly to John in his heavenly form. Jesus in his heavenly form is going to talk to John. Verse 11. What's this? Notice what he says again. Um, I was in the spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. What did the trumpet blast say? Write in a book everything you see. Ooh, I get cold chills. Do you know you got a copy of that book? Did you know that you got a copy of that book? Jesus says, write in the book everything I'm about to do. And I see John going, write it down, John. Write in the book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of, here they are, here's the seven, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Jesus is telling John to write down what we're about to read and study in these next weeks. Do you understand what we're doing here? This is not some small thing. 2,000 years later, and people are reading this transcribed letter of Jesus through John called the Revelation. That's what this class is about. If you're in here and you were looking for another group, I'm sorry, you're here. This is it. We're going to read and study the transcribed letter of Jesus to John that has been that has been protected through the centuries, and you have it today in your language. John was one of Jesus's inner circle during those three years of ministry before the cross. John was not an outsider. He was an insider. John knew Jesus as deeply as any man could possibly know Jesus, right? You need to get that before we read the next part, okay? Nobody, Peter and John, you you have to believe almost nobody would have known Jesus like Peter and John. He gave them, they saw the transfiguration together. They saw things, heard things that nobody else in the group heard. So John He knew Jesus, right? He knew him personally. Three years. Three years they had together. And John, the desolate island prisoner of Christ. Here's a trumpet sounding voice and he turns around and what does he see? What does he see? Verse 12. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw, here comes the first symbol. I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, what's, what's turned him around? It's not the lampstands that's turned him around. It's this voice that sounds like ocean waves. Loud ocean waves. And I turn around and I see seven golden lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Now, now let's do something. I want, you to, I want you to put this in your mind. Use your imagination to visualize it as we read it. So there's seven golden lampstands, and in, they're lined up. In the middle of the seven golden lampstands, there's a man standing there in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. 
And that man's talking, and he's got a real loud, thunderous voice. Someone like the Son of Man, John describes him. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash on his chest, standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes, you know, I can, you know, I can handle the, the white hair, okay? I can handle that part, and that's not shocking. That's about the only thing in this scene that's not very shocking. His head and his hair were like white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes are like flames of fire. Now, I'm going to tell you, that would get my attention rather quickly. His eyes look like they're on fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars. Now, what have we got so far? So far, we've got these seven golden lampstands. And now we've got seven stars. And he's, he's standing between the, the seven golden lampstands. And he's this frightening figure. I don't know how else to put it. And in his right hand, he has seven stars. In the seven lampstands, in his right hand, he has seven stars. All right, I want, you to see, I want you to visualize this as we read it. He has seven stars in his right hand, and out of his mouth, something is protruding. And a sharp two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance, which makes me believe it would be difficult to even look at him. It would be hard to, it would be hard to look. Now he says he's in the spirit. Maybe if you're in the spirit, you can look into the sun. I know in this flesh, it's a bad idea to look into the sun. So what's he seeing? What's happening here? Remember, John was worshiping in the spirit and his eyes are about to see, here it comes. He's gonna see glorified, resurrected Jesus. He's going to see sitting at the right hand of the Father, Jesus. In eternal glorious flesh, Jesus. Resurrected from the dead, Jesus. Got a new body that's eternal, Jesus. John saw the resurrected Jesus. Now you might wonder, what's the big deal of that? Because here's the big deal. The Bible specifically tells us that John saw resurrected body Jesus three times. And he didn't look like that any of the three times. All right? He didn't look like that then. John saw resurrected Jesus three times after the cross. But this scene in Revelation is much different. Seven golden lampstands. What are they? We'll find out later, so I'm not guessing. Those seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that you and I plan to study in great detail. Those lampstands represent seven churches. Now, they're real churches. Just in, inland in Turkey, in, the, in, in today. There, there are seven real churches, seven real places with seven real people. Now, there will be some spiritual application to the seven churches, but there's seven real churches. 
They were planted. They're real people. Real people in real churches. Anybody want to guess why they're called lampstands? We're the light of the world. You're not just a kingdom of priests. You hold this great light. You hold this great light that the world wants to put out. You hold up this very great light. So these seven churches, what's he saying? These seven churches are the seven lampstands. I'll show you in a minute where he explains that. In the middle of those seven lampstands was someone like, like, it's interesting his, his description. Of course, he's, he may be bug-eyed right about this point. He's someone like the Son of Man, glorified and resurrected Jesus, is standing in the middle of the seven churches. Who is standing in the middle of the seven churches? Jesus. Whose churches are they? John? They're not his church. Peter? They're not his church. They're Jesus' church. Jesus told Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He's standing in the middle. John's seeing Jesus standing in the middle of the seven churches. Whoa. Jesus, this is, what does it mean like the son of man? This is the title. If you take all of the New Testament and you were to write down every description Jesus gave of himself that Jesus used to describe himself you know what number one is the son of man Jesus most commonly referred to himself as the son of man so let's make something clear before we go on so because you're going to see this name what, what does that mean somewhat the son of man well is Jesus the son of man well his mother he's born of a virgin he was born of a woman okay so he, that's the same way we were born. We were born of a woman. So he, you can take the title, he was the son of man. But he's also got another title. He's also the son of God. Now that's unique. Well, well we could say we're the son of man because we, have, we came from our mother's womb. But Jesus is unique in the regard that he is also the son of God and the son of man in the same person. His daddy was not Joseph, nor any other man. He's not from the lineage of Adam. You can't trace his father, 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 all the way back. You're, gonna, you're not going to hit Adam. Because his father was uniquely God. But the woman was from man. Eve was from Adam, from man. But now you've got the Son of Man and the Son of God in one person. So, okay, I want you to get that. And he, John sees someone like the Son of Man. So, this is a messianic title. And I want to show you why it's a messianic title. Because 600 years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Daniel sees a vision. And Daniel writes it down, and you've got a copy of this one too, okay? I'm going to read it, Daniel 7, 13. This is 600 years before the time of Christ. Daniel says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Did anybody just read what John says 600 years later? coming in the clouds of heaven. Daniel and John are seeing the same future day of the Lord 600 years apart from each other. 
They use the same words to describe the same event. A son of man coming in the, cl- in the clouds of heaven. He approached. So who is the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven? It's Jesus. Jesus hadn't even been born in Bethlehem. He's not going to be born in Bethlehem for 600 years. But he approached, the son of man, approached the ancient one. He approached God the Father and was led into his presence. And he, who's the he? Jesus, the son of man, was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations. I'm going to ask you a question. Has this happened yet? Has Jesus assumed authority over all the nations? Not yet, but he will. He was given authority over all the nations of the world. So people of every race and nation and language would obey him. While Jesus walked on the earth, he never really left Israel. He never left that little bitty area. So how did he have influence over all the nations and every tribe he's going to? Daniel saw the future after he comes in the clouds of heaven. John saw the future Verse 14 again. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule, once he becomes king, once he comes in the clouds of heaven, his rule is what? Say it out loud. Eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. All of those are future events that will begin when he comes in the clouds of heaven. Jesus is dressed like a priest. Anybody noticed it? Because he is our great high priest. He is described as wearing a long robe and a gold sash around his chest. Where would you find that? Go to the Old Testament priesthood. You will find that's a priestly garment. He is our high priest. He is currently our high priest, but I want you to know something. He is going to fulfill three biblical roles. He will become the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is going to become all three. He comes to John in a priestly garment. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. What's that symbolize? Wisdom and honor. His eyes were like flames of fire. What do you think that means? He sees everything. There is nothing hidden from his view. And and again, I try not to get ahead of myself, which is really hard for me. But when you study the seven churches, every one of the seven churches, he begins with saying something like this. I know everything you do. All seven churches, he says the same thing in the introduction. I know everything you do. I see it all. Eyes like blazing fire. So in the room tonight, he knows. He knows. He knows me. He knows you. He knows. What do you think that means? (laughs) He's going to come as a judge. And he'll come as a judge in Revelation because he knows the truth. I don't know all the truth. You don't know all the truth. But he knows all the truth. He knows everything. His face is like the sun. 
He sees the truth. He is the truth. And his feet, this is interesting to me. I didn't know this before. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. So like bronze feet, what does that mean? They symbolize that he will return in judgment. And, and I, I got to tell you something. I have people tell me that the, the, the God of the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is love and mercy. The God of the Old Testament is wrath and judgment. And I'm thinking, you're reading a different book because this is the New Testament. He's coming to wage a mighty war. And he's coming. There will be more. Listen, listen, listen. There will be more people. The prophecy of Revelation. There will be more people die in the book of Revelation than all the Old Testament. So somebody's lying to you if you fail for this thing that he's the God. He's a different God in the New Testament. There will be more people die at his coming, called out specifically in Revelation, than all the Old Testament combined. And here's what I found interesting: everything in the Jerusalem Temple that had to do with sin and judgment was made of what bronze. Who told them to do that? God. What's Jesus' feet when he returns? Bronze. He held seven stars. Okay, here we go. Next point. He held seven stars in his right hand. This could go two ways. And there's different people have different opinions. One way is that the seven stars that God has assigned an angel to every one of those seven churches. That the church of Ephesus has an angel that watches over the church. There's another point of view that says it's not an angel, it's the pastor, it's the spiritual leader of that church, and God has a specific hand on the spiritual leader of the church. I don't know. I just know that either the angel or the pastor is the, is the seven stars in the seven churches. And I'll show you in a minute. I want you to know it's not my opinion. I'll show you where that comes from in a minute. And one more thing. When John describes him, he says there's a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. The sword is his word. Why do you think it's coming out of his mouth? What comes out of your mouth? The word comes out of your mouth. It's coming out of my mouth right now. And his word will strike down the nations. His word will be the standard of all the nations will be judged by. If you were here a few weeks ago when I did that sermon um, about Peter, you're the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And everybody's thinking, what does that mean? Peter and the apostles were the vehicle through which God transmitted from his mouth the word of God. You have a copy of it. I have a copy of it. That word has already bound heaven and earth. It's already bound it. It is connected, heaven and earth. You know the word of God. What you do next to that word will be yours and my final outcome. How I respond to that word. It is already binding heaven and earth together. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What, what do you mean? Because who do you think God revealed himself through? The apostles. If you read the book of Acts, I think it's in the second chapter, and the, the church has just been birthed. And what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. You know what we're supposed to be doing? Devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. What are the apostles' teachings? The New Testament. We're reading it tonight. John is an apostle. 
So when I say a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, the sword is his word, and his word will strike down the nations. You know why? Because all the nations from every generation will be measured against the word of God. The word of God. It doesn't move. It doesn't adjust. It doesn't care what you think. It stands as the word of God. His word will be the standard by which all the nations are judged. So I want to do something. I want to drive this point home because this is the very thing that most churches are ejecting is the word. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is alive and is powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. What's coming out of Jesus' mouth in Revelation? The word of God is alive. Why? Because it's coming from Christ. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. What's Jesus got coming out of his mouth when he comes? A sharp two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. What, what? The word exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Somebody tells me, and I've had this happen. You know what? I read the Bible and it's offensive. And I say, praise God. That means the Holy Spirit's still working in your life. Praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit still is cutting inside of you because you still have a chance to receive it as truth. You better be worried the day that you can read it and you're not offended. I'm offended every time I read the scripture. You know what? Because it shows me who I am and shows me who I'm not. And I don't ask it to adjust to me. My calling is to adjust myself to it because one day that word will bind heaven and earth together. And that word is coming out of his mouth. And it is a two-edged sword. It cuts in both directions. Verse, uh, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden before God. Remember those eyes of fire? This mouth with the sword? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked. Everything's exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Okay, if you fast forward to Jesus' return, I want to show you something. In chapter 19, can you see all of the descriptions of John? And how much of this have we read? We've only read this much. So I want to do something. Just jump forward to, to chapter 19 of Revelation, and let's read this and see how much of John's original description is showing up on the day of the Lord. Here we go, 1911. And then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider was named Faithful and True. And he judges. What's he coming to do? He judges fairly, and he wages a righteous war. His eyes are like flames of fire. Sound familiar? And on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except he himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title, what's his title when he comes? The Word of God. So if you're in the room today and you happen to say, you know, I believe in Jesus, I just don't believe in the Bible, you will. Yeah, you will. Just hang on. Yeah, you will. The armies of heaven dressed in finest of white, pure linen followed Jesus on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword. What's he going to do with the sword? He's gonna, his word, his word, he doesn't need a sword. His word will strike down the nations. They have bound heaven and earth together in eternity. His word. He will rule them with an iron rod. You know what that means? Absolute authority. 
He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He is fulfilling Daniel's prophecy and he's fulfilling the revelation of the Apostle John. King, kingdom, eternal, forever. All the nations will bow to him. Once, one more, one more. Before we look at John's reaction to seeing this glorified and resurrected Jesus. And his face will shine like the sun in all of its brilliance. John sees the light. Now here's how I see that. John sees the light that illuminated the darkness in Genesis chapter 1. Before there was a sun. Do you, think, do you think it was the sun shining on Jesus that John saw that made him go this? No. He saw the light in Genesis 1 before the sun and the moon and stars were ever created. Remember how it begins? And there was darkness over the surface of the deep and God said, let there be light and there was light. And there was darkness and then God comes. Wow. Remember, John has spent three years, 24-7, with Jesus. And John saw resurrected Jesus three times before the ascension. But now, something's different. Let's go to verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, John. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. Please don't read over those two words. I died. That's really going to be big for us. Because guess what? That's what happens. I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. John was overcome by the glory of the resurrected Christ. But Jesus didn't come to scare John to death. That's not why he's here. Even though I think he did it. The book of Revelation isn't intended to scare you to death either. I can remember, it's a long, long time ago. I was flying on airplane uh, a lot back in those days. And I, I had a flight from, from, um, from Lexington to Los Angeles. And I had business in L.A. And I decided I was going to read the entire book of Revelation. I still remember this. So serious to me. And uh, I read the entire book of Revelation on airplane. I didn't just read it. I read it. I meditated on it. I, 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 I ate Revelation on the airplane. It's a long flight. I got to my hotel room. I have never, I, you know what? I don't know if I've ever had anything do to me what that did to me. I get to my hotel room and I'm just on my face before God. When I understand what John saw, this is coming. This is coming. And you know about it. And by God's grace and mercy, you, you know in advance it's coming. It's not intended to scare you to death. It, that, it, what was it? it was written to encourage and keep us from becoming discouraged while we live in this battle against the world that says we're all nuts. But the problem is, everyone in the world that says we're nuts, in front of them there's a grave. There's a grave. And what are you going to do about that grave? And I'm looking at you. What are you going to do about that grave? Because he's going to deal with that right now. What are you going to do about this grave? He didn't come to scare people to death. He came to tell this guy in prison 
that the church is going to survive. The church is not a move of man. It's the move of God. It's unstoppable. It is Christ on the earth in the form of the Holy Spirit. You can't stop him. How can this revelation encourage us tonight? How could it encourage John? What did Jesus say when he touched him? John's laying down like a dead guy, right? Eyes popped out of his head. Scared to death. Trembling all over. And what's Jesus say? John, don't be afraid. Tonight in this room, I hear Jesus say, don't be afraid. I'm still here. I'm still here. I didn't leave. He's here in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now here comes the, what about that grave? What about that grave? Okay, all you world people that mock the church. What about that grave? Jesus died. But look, what's he say? But look, he's still alive. And he's still alive in our time, some 2,000 years after the island of Patmos. You know, I think the church is filled with a whole lot of people that believe in historical Jesus, that he was that guy back then. And I think the church is filled with a whole lot of people that believe in the future Jesus, that one day he's going to come and do these marvelous things. But what we need, you know what we need right now, is a church filled with people that believe that Jesus is real right now. He's not just an historical figure and he's not just a coming event. He is a right now experience. He is a right now God. He is here this moment. His word manifest in his people is his power in the last days for those who believe it. Those who receive it. He is still here. Do you believe those? He's the God of the past. He's the God of the future. But I got to tell you, he's the God of right now. He can't die. What did he say? I died, but I'm alive forever and ever. I died. Here's what I want you to do. He can't die, and those who are in Christ can't die either. That keeps me in the race. He says, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death in the grave. No other man on earth can make this statement of truth. Only one. Yes, there were some people on earth that experienced bodily resurrections. Lazarus, he experienced a bodily resurrection. The widow's son at Nain, Jesus raised her. Elijah raised the widow's son. In Zarephath, he raised her. But you know what? They all died again. Everybody hear me? They all went and got dead again. Lazarus died. He's going to do it again. He's got to die again. Jesus died. They put him in the grave. He raised he never died again. Oh, that's a small item? No, that's not a small item. That's as big as big gets. There's a man that died, and he came to life. And 2,000 years later, he's still alive. And he'll be alive 2,000 years from now and a million years from now. He cannot die. And those who are in Christ, and those who Christ enters, those who Christ enters, those who Christ enters, that's the Holy Spirit, you will never die. What do you say? In a graveyard. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What? You'll never die. Even if you die, you don't die. Even if you die and they put you in a box and put the box in the ground, you don't die because your soul goes to be with the Lord waiting for the resurrection on the last day and you'll get a new body. Somebody say hallelujah. Don't tell me this is small stuff. I died. I'm the living one. I died. But look, I'm alive forever and ever. Do you see how much John needed to hear this message? 
What? They're all dead. Peter's dead. What are we going to do? I'm in jail. He needed to hear this message, the revelation of Jesus. Do you see how important this message was to the church that was being martyred? They're dying. People are killing them. Do you see how important this message is to the church today? As we watch in our age, the world turn away from the word of God. The very thing that produces life itself, the word of God. We need this message. Can you imagine the emotion of John at this moment as he sees and he hears the words of his beloved Jesus? And then Jesus gives this specific instruction to John. Verse 19, write down what you have seen. Whoa, isn't this amazing? I want you to write it down. Both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars. I told you I would tell you what those seven stars and seven lampstands mean. Jesus looks at John and says, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars. You saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands that he was standing in the middle of. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Write it down, John. And John wrote it down. I'm glad John wrote it down. Directly from the Lord to the church, to Nineveh Christian Church. We will spend the next few weeks studying those seven different and unique letters to seven actual churches in Asia Minor. And I cannot tell you now, I don't have time, what those seven letters mean. They are individualized to each church, but they also represent an age in which every person from every generation can find themselves in one of those seven churches. You want to hear how that comes. And when we finish studying the seven churches, we're going to do something. We're going to spend six weeks looking at the rapture of the church. What? We'll look specifically for six weeks. I have written six sessions on Jesus coming in the clouds, which I've already read from Daniel and I've already read it from Revelation. Six weeks. I want to talk about what it means and the message to the church. This is the overriding, why? Why do I want to spend six weeks on that? Because this is the overriding theme of the book of Revelation. I'm coming in the clouds. Verse 22. Um, This is the end of Revelation. This is the overriding thing. Look, I'm coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. One last question for everybody tonight. Everybody, and I want you to answer out loud. Do you want the blessing offered to you in the book of Revelation for those who read it, those who hear it, those who obey it? Do you want the blessing? Answer me. Then come to every one of the sessions. There's over 200 people here tonight. You know what historically happens? I start a session with about 200 people. I end with about 140. Don't quit. You need this. You need this. I need it. And uh, let me say this. If by chance you've got to be in Honduras one week during the 12 weeks, we're going to do online video. So we will record these. They should be online sometime tomorrow. Uh, If you want to share them, Uh, not for you to play hooky, but there's somebody in your life that needs to hear the session tonight. It'll be online tomorrow. If you need a DVD, CD, those are made upon request. Call the church, call Suzette, she'll make one for you. This is for people to, to share. All right, this is good news. This is really good news. 
All right, let's close in prayer. Don't forget to pick up your kids before you go have nacho bar, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible message of good news. Thank you that you opened the curtain and let John get a peek. Because now we know what's coming. We know what's out there. And we know that you died, but now you're alive forevermore. And you have offered us this same life. That your life would be in us in eternity. So Father, we anxiously await the return of our King. And may he find all of us in this place preaching this wonderful good news. And given our testimonies on the day that you come in Jesus' name.